that's what everybody thinks of as the meaning of evolution. And that's not entirely incorrect, but it has some deep, deep flaws built into that idea. Welcome to Nerd About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is someone who I'm concerned about what's happening out in the ocean. It's been pretty windy here these days. I saw some kite uh, surfers the other day, and that is Dr. Kaylee Byers. How's it going, Kaylee? Oh, hello. I'm fine, thank you. You should be concerned for me because I've actually learned that I lack something called common sense. (laughs) It has been quite windy here lately. I think the last week it was 15 or 20 knots. And I did see that in the weather forecast and I still decided to go swimming. (laughs) And I am now about 20% ocean water. Yeah, it was like, I saw these kite surfers and they were like, they were getting some massive air. But my big question is like, where do these kite surfers come from? Like they, it's a massive thing. Do they just like have it stored in their storage for one day out of the year and then pull it out? Oh, they descend from the sky. Like they're, they live in the sky. And when the winds come, that's when you see them and then they go back away. That's, that's the origins of kite surfers. Amazing. Actually, you know what's funny is today we're actually going to be talking a little bit about origins and evolution. So today we are delighted to introduce you to Dr. Greg Bowl. Dr. Bull is an associate professor of teaching in the departments of zoology and botany at the University of British Columbia. In addition to teaching, he has been very active in local science communication initiatives like Science Slam and Hey Nerd Night, where he occasionally gives talks dressed up as Darwin. Hi, Greg. How are you? Hi. It's uh, it's great to be with both of you. I'm doing okay. It's so lovely to see you. And we've collaborated quite a bit through Nerd Night in the past. And now we get to collaborate on this podcast, which is a really fun new medium for us. Absolutely. I love everything you guys do. Aww. Oh, we love you too. <laughs> so to start out, we're going to be talking a little bit about evolutionary biology today, what it is, some misconceptions about it. But before we dive into all of that, can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in evolutionary biology? Because I imagine you have to be pretty interested in it to uh, do a few talks dressed up as Darwin. Well, let alone a seven-year PhD, but yeah. <laughs> I, it really has sort of two stages, I would say. What got me interested and continued my interest in biology, and then how did I focus specifically on evolutionary biology. So my love of biology goes back to as far as I can remember. Like in first grade, the teacher said, okay, now everybody pose like the job you want to have in the future when you're an adult, and then I'll try and guess what they are, right? So, okay, Billy wants to be a fireman, and Sally wants to be a, uh, a police person, and, uh, and I have no idea what Greg's trying to be. And I was a pet store owner. <laughs> I was like dipping fish out of a, out of an aquarium, imaginary aquarium. And, and my teacher couldn't figure that out. I couldn't believe it. So I have loved animals for as long as I can, I can remember. That love was really fueled by lots of time outdoors, lots of time visiting nature centers and places where they rescued animals. And so I was just, just animal crazy. And so that was even like through grade school and and getting into middle school. By the time I got to high school, my love of biology was completely solidified. 
And I knew that's what I wanted to go on and do at university. So I specifically looked for a good biology program in university. And I was living, I, I grew up in the States and I ended up at the College of William and Mary in, in Virginia, which has a fantastic biology program. And that's where I first started hearing a bit about evolutionary biology. And the coolest classes that I took in biology and the coolest lectures and professors that I had, according to me, were the ones talking about evolution. And it was just, it, it, it blew my mind. It made everything else make sense to me. And I just developed such passion for it that I knew that was going to be my future. Very cool. So to lay the basis for today, can you tell us what is evolution exactly? Sure, absolutely. We're going to be looking at some major misconceptions about evolution, some very common ones that a lot of people hold. Maybe a lot of our listeners still hold them, even though they think they've got a good handle on evolution. Um, but to get there, we first need to really talk about what it is, and then we're going to kind of debunk each of these misconceptions. So evolution really comes down to change, but it's a little more detailed than that in how we study it in uh, evolutionary biology in the field of science. We are interested in the change of traits at the level of a population over multiple generations. So you need really all of those components to say that a population or a species or a group of animals or plants or any other living organism is evolving. So when I'm talking about a population, what might a population be? Uh, just a bunch of, uh, of individuals of a given species that live in a certain place. So if we have um, wolves on the west coast of Canada and wolves on the east coast of Canada, they might be evolving, but they might be evolving in different ways if they're not in contact with each other. And if we think about traits, I mean, traits can be anything. If I'm a wolf, fur color, snout length, Howl capacity. Howl, capa howl capacity. I didn't know that's one that you would have to worry about um, in such detail. But yes, howl capacity uh, would definitely act as a trait. So the, the kind of traits that are easiest to track and easiest for us to think of are the physical ones that we can just sort of see and measure, right? How long are the legs? Uh, how big is the body? But then there are other traits that are a little harder for us to see with our eyes, but we can see them other ways, looking at DNA, looking at microscopes. So it might be the physiology of an organism, how it actually uh, runs its internal processes um, that might evolve in different ways. What it can digest, for example, might evolve over time. So those are definitely traits that we can still study as evolving traits, but they're not ones that are quite so obvious. So Greg, if we kind of take a step back and kind of look at the, the big picture here, you know, evolution is sort of the study of everything, you know, how everything got here, how we got here, how the plants got here. And of course, I was taught that it doesn't even exist because I grew oh, up. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. Poor Michael. Uh, but so Greg, so this is the study of all of these things. And yet there is a lot of misconceptions about how, what it is. So maybe you could walk us through some of the big misconceptions that you as an educator have come across in your time. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, there, there, there's sometimes ones that can even create controversy, even whether they should or should not create controversy has nothing to do with the thought. It's just the people's misconception leads them into thinking it creates a controversy. So I taught a number of different classes at UBC, but a lot of the first year biology classes, we would teach evolution and genetics and ecology. And so I'd run into a lot of the misconceptions that students had coming right into university. So um, a big one that is kind of foundational because you hear people trying to argue against evolution. They want a quick little gotcha 
And they say like, oh yeah, evolution's only a theory, <laughs> right? I don't know if you've ever heard that one before. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, but we have to be careful here because even though I want to teach you about evolution, I'm repeating the misconceptions. So the, the danger is you remember the misconception and not the explanation. So let's set that one aside and bright blue highlight and say evolution is just a theory is, is wrong, wrong way of thinking about it. Because this boils down to what is a theory in everyday language versus what is a theory in the language of science. And so in everyday language, it is often just a guess, just a speculation, just a feeling that you have. And you know that can play a role in science in other ways when you're developing hypotheses or trying to understand observations, but it's not the foundations of science. The theory in science is our best understanding of what's going on given all of the evidence that we have, right? So we can think about the theory of relativity or theories or laws of, of, of gravity or of motion or, or all those kinds of things in physics. Same idea. That's our best explanation. Can it change? Sure. If you get different evidence, you get new evidence that, that gives you a new perspective on it, those things can change, but it's not just a guess. It's hard one information. Well, and for all those budding science communicators out there, this is a really great example of how words can mean multiple things across fields and like in science versus outside of science and why it's really important to think when you're communicating about the words that you use and how you describe them to make sure that everybody's sort of on the same page with your meaning of it. We should also mention that we do this all the time, right? We should mention that, that we do this as scientists. We'll, we'll slip up sometimes and go, oh yeah, I've got a good theory about that one. Oops, wait, I meant hypothesis. <laughs> yeah. We need to correct ourselves. Okay, so we've established some of our vocabulary. So what are some of the other uh, misconceptions of evolution? Well, I'm going to give you two, two that are closely tied together. And I guarantee you, you've heard the second one. In fact, I guarantee everybody listening has heard the second one. Humans evolved from monkeys. So if you go to Google and just look up the word evolution, all the images are this monkey to man progression, right? That's what everybody thinks of as the meaning of evolution. And that's not entirely incorrect, but it has some deep, deep flaws built into that idea of humans evolving from modern day monkeys. So that's the misconception. And it's kind of tied into a greater misconception, which is that evolution is not a march of progress. And that's what that monkey to caveman to human makes us think, right? It makes us think that, ah, oh, we're going from something simple to something smarter, something smaller to something bigger, something to dumb to something, you know, more creative. And in some cases, that can be true in certain evolutionary lineages, but you can also have change happening in the other direction. Things can get simpler. Things can lose different parts they no longer need. And so it's not any kind of progress because there's no end goal. So let's set aside the idea of progress for a moment and come back to this idea of humans evolved from monkeys. And by the way, I asked my students at the end of, end of the term, what is the thing about this entire class that you have found most interesting or most useful? And about 40% of them say that humans did not evolve from monkeys. Mm -hmm. That's just like, that's the thing that out of the entire class, <laughs> they felt really useful because they can go to their friends. No, that's wrong. And here's why it's wrong. And here's what it actually means. Um, so that's kind of cool. So that progression, that march of progress is true in that humans had ancestors that had things more in common with some modern day species of monkeys and apes than they do with other things alive today. 
But it doesn't mean we evolved from monkeys because those things in the past were also ancestors to modern day monkeys. Right? So they're they're not a monkey. They're an ancestor to both living species of monkeys and to Homo sapiens, our own species. So where do you think that came from? Because you mentioned that diagram, you know, is that the root of it? Like, where did we get this idea that we evolved, that we evolved from monkeys? And that is a popular idea in culture. Well, Darwin did not talk about human evolution very much in his most famous book, The Origin of Species. He had a single line in the book saying, much light will be shed upon this topic. Um, but he only tackled it a little later in his career um, and some of his, uh, his later books, including the main one that introduced the idea of sexual selection. And he talked about human evolution a lot in there. And so just the fact that Darwin was saying all living things, as far as we know, have a common ancestor or are related to each other, and that they change through this process of evolution, often driven by natural selection, but not always. It's another misconception we could get to. He was introducing this idea that we are connected to all life. And I think that's a beautiful idea. But guess what? A lot of the people of the time, a lot of the um, religious people of the time or religious leaders of the time did not think this was such a great concept or idea. And so he was largely mocked during his lifetime about, oh, man and monkey and, and can't make a monkey out of me and your monkey's uncle and all these other things that came up. But I also agree with you. I think that diagram really solidified things. That did come out during Darwin's lifetime, but it was not from any of his books. It was from a different book of somebody interpreting what Darwin was saying. Is there another big misconception that you find that you encounter frequently in your classes? Yeah, this, this next one is kind of tied to this idea of evolution being a march of progress, which we said is related to this idea of monkeys evolving into humans. And just, just to tie a bow around that one, just to make sure that we get the, the right one as the last thing we say, it's that modern day species of monkeys and apes and humans all had common ancestors. And those common ancestors had traits and, and features that were very different from all the things that live today. So we can't place a chimpanzee in our past because they're alive today. They're not our ancestor. Okay, so our third misconception is that organisms will evolve adaptations that they need or that will help them in the future. And that's not how evolution works. We'd have to get into a little bit more detail about how evolution does work to really show why that's a misconception, but it's a really, really common one. So for example, a student might say, um, there's a bunch of bacteria living in, in somebody's kitchen and that person sprays uh, antimicrobial spray in their kitchen. And so it kills off most of the bacteria, but some of those bacteria will evolve an immunity to that because they were sprayed. And that kind of sounds convincing, right? Like that's a lot of the process of, of how evolution works. But the big problem is, is they didn't evolve it because they needed it or because the spraying was there. It's just that a few lucky bacteria already had immunity to that. And so they were the ones that survived. Yeah. So those traits have to already pre-exist. And that's where some randomness can come into it, right? Random mutations, random combinations of chromosomes through parents and children. All those things give us genetic variation. And genetic variation is sort of the building blocks that evolution can work upon, that selection can work upon. Well, you could probably even bring that back to the current COVID-19 pandemic and the bane of our current existence of this B117 variant, right? Like that variant 
existed, but it didn't necessarily like, oh, I'm going to be the one (laughs) to be a super spreader. It's planning. Yeah, it's sitting there planning. No, that's a much better example. But yeah, like let's let's say the, the Brazil variant, which is better at spreading and maybe in some cases better at killing, unfortunately, as well. It's not that that virus had any way of planning to do that because it would be useful. It just randomly happened to have the right parts that made it survive better, the virus, the host survive a little bit less, but it allowed it to spread really rapidly. And so, yeah, that's evolution in that, in that, that line of uh, microbes. Yeah. And there's any number of other mutations that we don't see because those weren't great for spreading. And they just get wiped out. Yeah. See you later. Uh, M225. (laughs) So I've got a question for you guys. I have a question for both of you that I want to sort of test your acumen of, uh, of evolution now that we've got some, some misconceptions going on. So I'm going to make a statement, and you're going to tell me whether you think the statement is correct or not. Maybe we'll start with Michael, whether he thinks that statement is correct or not. And then we'll move on to Kaylee, the biologist, I might remind our listeners. I'm a, I'm, I think I'm a chemist or a physicist. <laughs> <laughs> this is my nightmare. Right, you're a physicist? Yeah. <laughs> and you're going to tell us why or why not that statement is correct or incorrect, according oh, no. to, to Michael's Michael's best estimate, okay? okay? So let's uh, set up another of these scenarios. We use these case studies or scenarios a lot when we're, we're teaching biology. In this case, though, we've got a species that probably most of us are familiar with here in Vancouver, the, the bald eagle, right? We can see bald eagles if you go out and wander around down by the seawall at the right time of year, uh, or you can go to the North Shore and see literally dozens or hundreds of them at the right time of year when the salmon are running. So bald eagles have pretty good wings for flying quickly and getting their prey, right? That's something that we'd all probably agree with. So here's my question, or here's my statement, and you can tell me whether you think this is true or not or why. So bald eagles have evolved the best wings. I'm going to say that is an incorrect because you said the words evolved best, which with what you had just previously said was that they're in evolution. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are improving something. It just means that there is a certain strain of change that has happened. Okay. I'm going to pause you there. Definitely in the right direction. Fantastic job. So Kaylee, why does it not make them best? And maybe you can draw on some other species as examples as well. Yeah, I would say it doesn't make them best. It, they might be well adapted for their habitat and uh, behaviors, but that other birds will benefit from having different wings. So thinking of hummingbirds <laughs> probably yeah. wouldn't do well with super broad, soary wings. <laughs> Let's throw some eagle wings on a hummingbird and see how yeah. well it uh, gets nectar. <laughs> exactly. Or even um, swifts, right? Swifts have quite long, narrow wings for, for their flight. They need to maneuver in tight spaces quite a bit of the time, I think. Mm-hmm. So having having eagle wings wouldn't really benefit them either. So best for whom? Best for that species, given its past history, given its current environment, given the random mutations that it had available. All of those things are things we need to take into account. And so really there is no best. We can't use that word best. That's the same idea as this march of progress. We're trying to get to an end result. And that's what that monkey to man is kind of suggesting, that we are the best, right? We're the best species out there. Well, I have news for you. We are trashing our environment at a rate that maybe would not make us the best species on the planet. Yeah, we're kind of garbage. But what about the wings of a penguin or an ostrich? 
Yeah. Right? Are they the best? Well, they might be the best for them. For penguins, might have the best wings for swimming underwater and getting fish. So we can't really use that word, best. Evolution is not better or worse. It's just whether it's successful and passed on or not. Let's steer this eagle home here, Greg, and give us your next misconception of evolution. Sure. Let's go with our last one. Evolution is entirely random. And that's one of these arguments that anti-evolution people like to use. They like to say, oh yeah, so you're expecting me to believe that all of these complex parts of the hand or the eye or whatever were just a bunch of random mistakes that happened to come together in the right form to be able to function properly. And uh, the eye is actually a really great example of this because it was argued for a long time um, that the eye is too complex to have come about through evolution or through through sheer randomness. But we have studied in great detail all of the different stages of eyes evolving from a simple cell on the outside of the, the skin of an animal that detects light a little bit better, or an organism of any kind that detects light a little bit better, all the way up to a fully functional camera eye like we have. So the idea there is that randomness plays a role. We talked about mutations, and we talked about how mutations can be random mistakes and copying DNA, or if we didn't talk about it, I just said it right there. That's the random part, but the selection, the natural selection is the non-random part. It's not random which things survive. It's the eagle with the better wing for catching its fish in its current environment that has a better chance of surviving. And so that's not random. There's only a random element to the, the generation of this variation. Yeah, what's the example that's commonly taught in high school with the moths and the industrial revolution? Yeah, Biston bitularia, the, uh, the white and black moths. I was going to say, I bet you know the species <laughs> name. <laughs> well, my professor in university, the one of the ones who I told you first inspired me, um, worked on that species. He didn't do the original oh, cool. work. That was a scientist named Kellwell, but he did work on that species and try and continue to figure out what's going on. Yeah, so, so using that as an example, moths can come in lots of different colors from light to dark just by its random shuffling of genes that happens through mutation, that happens through, through uh, the formation of chromosomes and the combination of chromosomes and, and eggs and sperm. And so you get this variation in the next generation. And if you stick all of, this, all of these variants from very dark moths to very light moths up against a light background, like a white colored tree trunk, like a birch or something, then the predators are going to be able to see the dark ones, eat them quite easily. That gene did not survive as well. And they're going to not be able to see the light colored ones as easily. And so more of those will survive. And so you get evolution. But then the industrial revolution came along, soot was everywhere, it blackened these tree trunks. So now the environment has suddenly changed, tipped itself uh, backwards. And so now it's the dark ones that are doing a better job of surviving. And the white ones are not surviving as well because they contrast against their background. Should we let our uh, nerd herd get in here and uh, ask uh, Dr. Greg some questions? Oh, let's see what uh, misconceptions they have. Why is the sky? What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? It's like carbon it's based. the fastest thing on Earth. Why do we keep it? It's time for listener questions. All right. If you want to get in on the Nerd Herd questions, we post them on our socials at NerdNightYVR, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And our first one comes in from Promote. How is speciation defined in modern biology? 
Oh, cool. Great question. Speciation is something that we didn't really have a whole lot of time to get into in those misconceptions, but it's a really important and really exciting part of evolutionary biology. And it's actually what one of the things that, that I was studying uh, when I did my PhD research. And that is the formation of or evolution of new species that previously did not exist. So that could be one species splitting into two. It could be one species changing over time that it's so different, we give it a different name. But the real critical element that I think modern evolutionary biologists have come to some agreement on, and you know, they'll never agree on everything. You get, you get 12 scientists in a room and, uh, and they'll never agree on everything. But the key to this idea of speciation or new species forming is the fact that these groups are taking different evolutionary trajectories. And so that kind of begs the question, well, what do you mean by these different evolutionary trajectories? And there's a number of different ways to measure that. You can measure it by how physically they've changed, how much physically they change, whether they look like each other. You can measure it with their DNA molecularly. How similar are they? How similar are, they, are their DNA sequences? Um, you can measure it with their behavior. Um, if they're a sexually reproducing species, how often or frequently are they capable of reproducing a successful offspring together? And so any one of those could be used as an indication of speciation, but I think you have to use as much evidence as you have available to you to really come to the best understanding of how a new species has come about. Very cool. We have an, another question here from Armin, and Armin asks, how did people perceive of Darwin when he was alive? Well, it depends on which people you're talking about. <laughs> his, his wife liked him very much. Oh, uh, it's actually is, is not just a throwaway statement. It's actually an interesting statement because his wife was a very religious person, and uh, Emma Darwin, and Emma... Uh, you know, was no shrinking violet. She she came from a very well-off family. She knew what she was doing. Uh, she did cool things like she was taught piano by Franz Liszt, which is pretty awesome. I guess when you have the big bucks, you can you can do things like that. But anyway, she had a strong conviction in her own religious beliefs, and some of those came into conflict with what her husband was proposing in his books. And the way that she settled this was that the parts where she thinks there's enough evidence or enough convincing, then she's convinced. So, you know, she, she agreed with him a lot. She could follow and understand this just as easily as, uh, as anybody else at the time. But she didn't think that they could completely 100% be on the same page because she had some different beliefs than he did. And what was really beautiful about the relationship is they were both okay with that. They were like, I'm not going to try and change your mind. I'm not going to, you know, bother you every day about this. I'm not going to divorce you or anything. Uh, it's okay that we can disagree on beliefs, especially if they don't require evidence. So people, that, there were plenty of people that were close to Darwin that were big supporters. Uh, a lot of botanists and geologists and biologists. But there were everyday people that were also fascinated by Darwin. Um, whether they thought of him as a hero or a genius or, or a crackpot, it's tough to say. But his book was like a bestseller. Like it, the, the first printing sold out before it was even done printing, right? So it was very popular at the time. <laughs> Pre-orders. Just got to pre-order that thing. Maybe you can even download it on your Kindle and get it faster that way. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't think of that. But the story that I always liked is that they, they dropped the quality and the price of The Origin of Species at one point because they wanted 
everybody to be able to afford it and to read it. And so, for example, uh, like four or five miners would get together and pool their money and buy a copy of this book just because everybody was talking about it. And it wasn't the highest quality book, but the ideas were there. And if they were open-minded thinking people that could look at the evidence and can try and figure out what's going on, then um, they would be supporters. And so I think the vast majority of people did support Darwin and did support the book simply based upon he was arguing from first principles. He was writing a book that, that everyday people could understand. You couldn't say the same thing about Newton and the Principa Mathematica. Uh, <laughs> that's not something that everybody could understand, right? So that's the beautiful thing is he was writing in a language and, and you can go out and you can get a copy of The Origin of Species and you can follow along. I mean, it sounds a bit stiff in places because it's written in 19th century jargon, but it, he's talking about pigeons and dogs and, uh, and eagles. And so stuff that you can imagine and think of and see around you in the real world. And you can go, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Our uh, final question, Greg, comes from Lisa, who asks, when are we getting rid of this useless pinky toe? Everybody wants to know. Well, Lisa, I do have a set of very sharp pruning uh, shears. So if you wanted to drop by, we could, you know, we could have that toe off in, in no time at all. Um, I don't think that's what she meant. I think what she's referring to is this idea of vestigial traits, traits that maybe served a purpose in the past, but no longer serve any or at least the same service to the to the organism in their current environment and current how they live. So so our ape-like ancestors had not only opposable thumbs like we do, but they had opposable uh, big toes, right? So their, their whole foot, what we would call a foot, is like another hand. It could do everything that their hands could do. Mm -hmm. It could grip, it could, could peel, it could, you know. And so that was really useful for them in their lifestyle. Less so for us. But this kind of brings up another one of these misconceptions. Does something disappear simply because it's not being used? And sometimes the answer is yes, if it's a costly thing to make, if it, if it costs a lot for the organism to put resources or put time into to growing or, or, or maintaining this thing. But, you know, you're already making toes, so and a little extra toes, not really much of a thing. So unless there's some reason that it's decreasing the ability to reproduce or their fitness, then there wouldn't be a strong reason why pinky toes would start to disappear. So you lose your toes by pruning shears, let's say. That's the idea that you then pass that on is very Lamarckian, right? Yeah. The idea that you would remove them and then your children will not have them is not is a thing. Wrong. You still yeah. have the genetics to make those toes. You go. Yeah, that's a great misconception you just debunked. Hey, Lamarck's coming back a little bit more in fashion these days as we learn more about like molecular stuff where there mm -hmm. are certain genes that if they're used more often can be can be passed on more frequently and things like that. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Not everything that he said was great, but he actually believed in evolution at a time when other people didn't. So. Lamarck's okay in my book. Well, since we uh, brought up Lamarck, should we uh, nerd out some more? Oh my gosh, yes. Lamarck is always an excuse to nerd out some more. <laughs> Bring it on. What you about? What you about? All right, if you want to get in on the nerd outs, 
You can send them to us on our socials at NerdNightYVR, or you can email us, Vancouver at NerdNight.com. Our first one came in from Catherine, who's nerding out about the classic sci-fi show Babylon 5. Have you ever seen Babylon 5, Greg? Uh, I've seen it in bits and pieces, not as much as I've seen like Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> well, what's, what's your go-to show been the, during this past pandemic? All right, he- here we go. Here we go. Here's one that's maybe a little, a little nerdy, but a little cool at the same time. I've been really getting hooked lately on a show called Ink Masters, which <gasps> yes! is kind of like a reality show like Survivor or something, but it's all about people judging tattoo work. Yeah, I've seen them all. And so being a person that has a number of biologically themed tattoos, I, uh, I really like to see what they come up with for their tattoos. Yeah, some of those tattoos are fantastic, though I do sometimes people get get done dirty. Uh, Greg, what have you been nerding out about recently? Okay, so I'm going to kind of take a kind of hard left here, if you guys don't mind. We've been talking about, you know, frivolous and, and, and simple things like evolution. But I want to I I get serious for a bit because there is one main thing that has been dominating my life recently, and it's the fact that I've been diagnosed with cancer for the third time. How come it always hits me? So this is my third kind of cancer. The first two we were able to deal with. And so how were we able to deal with the first two kinds of cancer? Science, right? Like, I think it's so cool that biology plus medicine plus chemistry means that people can live today that couldn't live five years ago or 10 or 15 years ago. So I was lucky enough um, that my first kind of lymphoma was one of the first types of cancer that had ever been treatable by a drug. And so that was pretty well established and it's pretty, pretty, pretty well under control. Um, but three strikes and you're out. The most recent kind is probably not something that I'm going to be able to get past. So it's, uh, it's similar to a pancreatic cancer or, or a bile duct cancer, and it has spread. So that means it's stage four, not good news. Um, so that means that I'm kind of figuring out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life when it doesn't look like it's going to be all that long. Mm. And uh, talking to you guys is, is a great way to spend it, um, oh. talking about nerdy things and talking about science, and that's what I love to do. So I'll be doing lots more of that. But I wanted to tell you in specific about uh, three drugs that um, I'm being used to, uh, to treat my cancer. And this is not a cure for the cancer. This is just to try and slow it down, to try and get me as many months as I can. So one of them is called Irina Tican, and it is a plant-derived compound. Yeah. Already pretty cool, right? They they found this compound in plants and now use it as a as a as a chemo drug. And it basically operates to inhibit DNA replication and DNA transcription. So if you're ever curious why people have their hair fall out sometimes when they get chemo, it's because it's basically you are carpet bombing every cell in your body that's dividing. So the hair is dividing very quickly and other, you know, the cell Cancer cells are dividing very quickly, so it's just wiping those out. But here's another one. Oxyloplatin makes cross-links in DNA, both between the same strands and between different strands. Oh. So it's just basically messing up DNA replication. It's going in and just, you know, effing things up. (laughs) And so it's just just messing with the ability for for these cells to replicate, and that'll slow them down. But here's here's my um, question for you. When do you think this chemotherapy drug was approved? I'm going to guess 30 years ago. Don't know why. That's my guess. I'm going to say sooner. I'll, I'll, say, I'll say 15. Very, very close, Michael. It was in 2015. So it's been more than 15 years. But that's, um, oh, sorry, less than 15 years. 
and, and in our recent past, right? Like you go, you go back to 2013 when I had my first cancer diagnosis. And if I had this cancer back then, that would not be a tool we had in our arsenal. It did not exist as a treatment for chemotherapy. So it just shows you how quickly it's moving and how fast science is working to, to wipe out cancer. So yeah, a little bit of a, of a downer, but think of all the positive uh, and the people that are saved by this. Uh, and so I think it's pretty cool, pretty, pretty nerdy. Well, uh, you know, we're going to try to get it to the end of this uh, podcast here, Greg. I don't want to just like move on from this monumental, you know, information that you just shared with us. Of course, Carly and I, this isn't brand new news for us. We uh, have talked before, Greg, and, you know, this is really devastating for us, but we're really excited to have this time with you and that you were on the podcast and and we went for you know an amazing walk and hopefully hopefully we can do it again and and you gave me a book which thank you so much greg for giving me a forcing me to read a non-fiction book that's not solely about space and uh and you know i've never read a book about evolution so it, I, my brain was just like i like just pulsing as i'm reading this you know my eyes like what is going on here so this popular science book, you know, that it sells itself to, for me, Cosmos was that book. And that was important because, as I mentioned before, it kind of started to like nudge me out of the world that I grew up in, which was this, you know, religion, which, you know, everything in this book about evolution is just kind of like it doesn't exist, right? So here I am looking at the title of this book, which is Life Ascending, The Ten Great Inventions of of evolution by Nick Lane. Okay, so right off the bat, everything that I grew up in is just kind of like, well, this is not real. As I was a kid, I would have looked at this and like, well, well, I would have been first off curious about it, but I would have been like, what the hell? Like, what's going on here? So I thought I'd do a little technique as I was younger and kind of making this transition from, you know, being a sheltered kid to being now a science communicator, I worked at chapters. And one of my techniques that I did was I devoured everything, but of course I couldn't read every book. So I would read the table of contents, which I think is really good in this book because it's the 10 great inventions, which I can read them out right now, which are one, the origin of life, two, DNA, three, photosynthesis, four, the complex cell, five, sex, six, movement, seven, sight, eight, hot blood, nine, consciousness, 10, death. Okay. And then I would also read the beginning of the book and then also the end. And what I thought I'd do is I thought I would mirror this with, of course, the book that also told me about the beginnings of the universe and the end, which is the Bible. Okay, so here's how the beginning of the Bible starts. Uh, Genesis uh, 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the end of the, that first paragraph, it goes on about creating humans. And then the last line there is, God said, be fruitful, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish and the sea, the birds and the air, and every other living thing that moves on this earth. Uh, heavy stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's intense. Okay. <laughs> okay, so here's how Life Ascending starts in the chapter Origin of Life, which I don't know if he did, he probably did this on purpose because he was like, I'm going to tell my own version uh, of the beginnings. Here we go. First line, night followed day in swift succession. 
That's all he says. And then skipping to the end of the paragraph, he says, humans could not survive here. Our eyes would not bulge and burst as they would on Mars, but our lungs could find no breath of oxygen. We'd fight for a desperate minute and asphyxiate. Hell yes. (laughs) If I was a kid and read this, I'd be like, oh yeah, what an amazing story. Like that's way better. Yeah. And how did life overcome that? Right. Exactly. And um, and of course, yeah. you know, there's it goes in depth into so many different parts of the chapters. And I, and I won't go on because uh, I don't want to take up time. But thank you so much, Greg, for this book. I really enjoyed it. And I will definitely be reading more books about evolution. Oh, you're very welcome. This is a book that that Kaylee and myself and you have all read. So uh, it's a pretty, pretty cool book, Life, Life Ascending. And, uh, and Nick Lane's, yeah, a really neat writer. He focuses a little more on the biochemistry side of things. Um, but that's, you know, really important, especially to the origins of life. Awesome. Kaylee, what have you been nerding out about? Well, I think I'm going to sort of continue this thread a little bit. I've been really nerding out about science communication, but more like the science communication community lately. So, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you know, we're really into science and science communication, but building community is also really important. And I've been reflecting on how lucky we are to have such a very, supportive community of people here in Vancouver, but also in Canada doing really interesting science communication work. So Greg, you're here on the podcast today. I met Greg through Nerd Night. Uh, We both met Greg through Nerd Night. Greg came to talk at Nerd Night. Wait, you invited me to Nerd Night. So you might have, you must have met me before then if you invited me to Nerd Night. I knew who you were. (laughs) Okay. You had heard rumblings, heard rumors. I'd heard some rumblings (laughs) through the grapevine about you. And, And I mean, we probably had met, but I didn't know you very well. And you gave a talk at Nerd Night. And I remember being like, this guy's really cool. And I want him to be my teaching mentor. And you were my teaching mentor. Uh, so I went and learned, you know, how to be a better instructor from you. But you're also involved in like, not only Nerd Night, but in Science Slam. And Science Slam is also a really incredible science communication event that we have here and in other cities throughout Canada. And you've been really involved with lots of different groups around science. And just thinking about what a really cool dynamic group of people is just like so passionate about science that we just want to hang out together and like talk about it and explore it together. And that to me is so incredible and so special. And through the podcast, we've been able to chat with even more people and to continue to build that community outside of Canada and to learn from folks and to celebrate them. So as a bit of a community update, previous Nerd About podcast, Elizabeth Carlin just defended her PhD today, so is now officially Dr. Elizabeth Carlin. So a huge shout out to Dr. Carlin. And the reason I've been thinking about this is because Science Odyssey is coming up. So Science Odyssey is a festival for science. It's happening from May 1st to 16th. And there's actually going to be over a thousand different events, as you can imagine, many of them virtual this year. Science Slam is running one. We're in the process of, uh, of organizing one. By the time this comes out, you should be able to check for it. I guess this is my promo to say science communication in Canada is real wicked. And if you want to see some very cool events, go check out Science Odyssey. Come to our event, obviously. <laughs> obviously. And uh, engage with your local science communicators. So that's what I've been nerding out about. Super cool. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This is, you know, such a treat uh, every time that we get to talk to you. I can imagine there might be some people that are hearing this news about your health for the first time might want to message you. Where should we direct people if they want to do that? So the the main 
kind of charity or donation or support that I've been uh, pointing people towards is just BC Cancer. And you can specify what kind of cancer you're interested in supporting, but there's also just general BC Cancer can support stuff uh, as well. And if you want to support cancer in your own local neighborhood or your own country or your own state, if other people are listening, um, that's totally cool as well. But people here in Vancouver, if you just type in BC Cancer, it's pretty easy to find. Thank you so much for being here today with us. It was such a delight to chat with you all about evolution, which is one of my favorite things to talk about, and misconceptions about it, which would be one of my second favorite things to talk about. And thank you, everybody, so much for listening. If you want to hear more from us, you can find us on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until we meet again, remember, there is no best. You just do the best for you.